So this morning I want to spend some time in the Old Testament. Uh, the scripture that I will be preaching from is in your bulletin. Uh, it is from 1 Kings chapter 19 verses 1 through 15a. And it begins, Ahab reported to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. Jezebel immediately sent a messenger to Elijah with her threat. The gods will get you for this, and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. That's quite an opening from Jezebel. It reminds me of, of the evil witch from the Wizard of Oz. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. What is it that has Jezebel in such a tizzy regarding Elijah? What did Elijah do to set Jezebel against him so intensely? Well, if you remember the account in 1 Kings, the people of Israel are divided. They are a divided people with some worshiping the one true God and some are worshiping the false God, Baal. I don't want to draw too many similarities between what the Methodist church is going through these days, but let me just say it's reminiscent Let's put it that way. It's reminiscent of the divide in Israel where some are following the one true God and some are following something else. And King Ahab has given in to the desires of his wife Jezebel, who worships Baal and who has systematically murdered all the prophets of God until Elijah is the only one left. So Elijah challenges Ahab and tells him to gather all the prophets of Baal. There are 450 of them. Gather them together on Mount Carmel for a showdown and to summon all of Israel to the mountain to be witnesses to this showdown between the one true God and the prophets of Baal. And so Elijah says, I'm the only prophet of God left in Israel, and there are 450 prophets of Baal. Let the Baal prophets bring up two oxen. Let them pick one, butcher it, and lay it out on an altar of firewood, but don't ignite it. I'll take the other ox, cut it up, and lay it on the wood, but neither will I light the fire. Then you pray to your gods, and I'll pray to God. The God who answers with fire will prove to be, in fact, God. And so all the people agreed. Yes, that's a good plan. Let's do that. And so Elijah told the Baal prophets, choose your ox and prepare it. You go first. You're the majority. Then pray to your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the ox he had given them, prepared it for the altar, then prayed to Baal. They prayed all morning long. Oh, Baal, answer us. But nothing happened. 
Not so much as a whisper of a breeze. Desperate, they jumped and stomped on the altar that they had made. And by noon, Elijah had started making fun of them. I like Elijah. (laughs) Started making fun of them, taunting. Call a little bit louder. He is a god after all. Maybe he's off meditating somewhere or doing God things. Or maybe, maybe he's gotten involved in a project. Or maybe he's gone on vacation. You don't suppose he's overslept, do you? And needs to be woken up. And so they prayed louder and louder, cutting themselves with swords and knives, which was a common ritual to them until they were covered with their own blood. And this went on well past noon. They used every religious trick and strategy they knew to make something happen on their altar, but nothing happened, not so much as a flicker of response. Then Elijah told the people, enough of that. Now it's my turn. Gather around. And so they gathered. He then put the altar back together, for by now it was in ruins with all the stomping of the prophets of Baal. And he took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Jacob. The same Jacob to whom God had said, from now on, your name is Israel. And he built the stones into the altar in honor of God. Then Elijah dug a fairly wide trench around the altar. He laid firewood on the altar, cut up the ox, put it on the wood and said, fill four buckets with water and drench both the ox and the firewood. Then he said, do it again. And they did it. Then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The altar was drenched and the trench was filled with water. When it was time for the sacrifice to be offered, Elijah the prophet came up and prayed, O God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, make it known right now that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I am doing what I'm doing under your orders. Answer me, God. Oh, answer me and reveal to this people that you are God, the true God, and that you are giving these people another chance at repentance. Immediately, the fire of God fell and burned up the offering, the wood, the stones, the dirt, and even the water in the trench. All the people saw it happen. And fell on their faces in awed worship, exclaiming, God is the true God. God is the true God. Elijah told them, grab the Baal prophets. Don't let a single one get away. And they grabbed them. And Elijah had them taken down to the brook Kishon. And they massacred the lot. So that's why in chapter 19, we open and Jezebel is hopping mad at Elijah because he showed her God, Baal, to be a false god and for having all of the false prophets killed so that they couldn't continue to spread the lies. And so what happens next is a little bit perplexing. It's a little bit odd. Elijah who has just called fire from heaven to prove that his God is the one true, almighty, most powerful God. Elijah, who just defeated the army of Baal's false prophets, that same Elijah becomes afraid 
of Jezebel and runs away. She must have been a formidable opponent. And when Elijah saw how things were, Scripture says, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah, and he left his young servant there and then went on into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life, he says. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. And exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom bush. See, this doesn't make sense to me. How does Elijah go from complete victory to utter defeat and despair? How does a person lose hope so quickly? And then as I think of our own circumstances in this world, I suppose life can be like that, though, can't it? One minute we're on top of the world, or at least we're on top of our little world. And the next minute we're suddenly overwhelmed either by our success by the sudden onset of increased responsibility or we're overwhelmed by the expectations of others that are looking to us now for guidance and direction. Isn't that the way it is? Suddenly, an angel shook Elijah awake and told him, get up and eat. And he looked around, and to his surprise, right by his head, there's a loaf of baked bread on hot coals and a jug of water. And so he ate the meal, and he went back to sleep. And the angel of God came back a second time, shook him awake again, and said, get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. And so Elijah got up, ate, drank his fill, and then he set out on his journey. Nourished by that meal, he walked 40 days and nights. All the way to the mountain of God, to Horeb. And when he got there, he crawled into a cave and he went to sleep. And the word of God came to him a third time and said to him, Why are you here, Elijah? That's an excellent question. It's a question that could be asked many different ways. As I read that question, it it depends on where I put the emphasis. How I interpret that question that the word of God puts to Elijah. We might say, why are you here, Elijah? Which might suggest that we don't understand at all why you think it necessary to run and hide from your enemies when clearly the one true God is on your side. And so we ask the question with the emphasis, why on earth are you hiding here, Elijah? Or or we might ask the question, why are you here, Elijah? 
might suggest that we're surprised that the one remaining prophet of God, a man clearly in good standing with the Lord, a man who should be secure and reveling in the favor of God, would have fallen so far into defeatism and despair. And so we might ask, why are you of all people, Elijah, why are you here? Or we might ask the question this way. Why are you here, Elijah? Which might suggest that we don't understand your choice of location. Hunkered down, as we like to say, in a cave, hiding in the dark, away from the action, away from where the work of uh, the kingdom needs to be done, away from your calling, away from your ministry. Why are you here instead of where you're supposed to be doing the work to which the Lord God has called you, Elijah? And so upon hearing that question in whatever emphasis you want to place on the words Elijah says I've been working my heart out for the God of the angel armies the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant they've destroyed the places of worship they murdered your prophets I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me I imagine his tone here and I don't think I'm off base in his initial response to the question, why are you here, Elijah, uh, to be uh, confrontational with the word of God? Why are you asking me why I'm here? It's clear to anybody who's been seeing what's going on in the church, in Israel, in the world. It's clear to anybody what's going on. Aren't you as angry as I am, God? And so God says, go stand on the mountain at attention before me and I will pass by. And a hurricane wind ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God, but God wasn't to be found in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle, quiet whisper. See, God doesn't come in the violent wind. He doesn't come in the earthquake. He doesn't come in the fire. No, He comes in a gentle Quiet whisper. I like the new Revised Standard Version that says, He comes in the sound of sheer silence, a thin, sheer silence that can be heard. Despite the quietness of this moment, this is a powerful image of God. Not as a forceful wind that blows us over. Not as shaking and trembling ground that causes us to lose our footing. Not as fire that turns up the heat of our fear and our anxiety. No, He comes in gentle, controlled, sensitive to our weakness and fragility as humans. He comes in a whisper. 
There's a saying I always think of when I read this passage that says the devil shouts at us because he has to keep his distance. But God whispers to us because he's close. He whispers because he's close to us. Isn't that a comforting thought? That God chooses not to use his God voice that spins planets and stars and suns into being in the universe. No, he's close to us. And so he whispers that still small voice. And when Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak and he went to the mouth of the cave once again and he stood there. And a quiet voice asked, so Elijah, now tell me, why are you here? See, he muffles his face with a cloak. It gives us a different image of his response, doesn't it? It's the same words. It's the same response. But he's hiding his face in respect and fear and a good measure of shame and embarrassment, I might add, at his previous response. And he says it again. He says, I've been working my heart out for you, God the God of the angel armies, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant. They've destroyed your places of worship. They've murdered your prophets. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. See, what I hear here from Elijah is a humble, contrite heart. At this point, he's realized that He had failed to trust the God he serves. God who had come through for him in such a mighty way already. Can't you just hear the repentance in his voice as he repeats the same words to God, realizing just how foolish he has been? And so does does God respond by punishing him? Does God chastise Elijah for his unfaithfulness and for his doubt? No, not in the least. He simply tells him, go back the way you came through the desert to Damascus. See, God says, Elijah, I can hear the change in the tone of your response. I can hear that you have humbled yourself and are now repentant and contrite and that you have allowed my spirit to renew your spirit. And so now, Elijah, return with confidence to where you were before, to your position of victory and favor and grace. Return to the mission and ministry that I called you to, Elijah. Well, everything else has been a distraction from the mission and the ministry I called you to as the body of Christ in motion in Splendora and the world. Everything else that's been going on, pandemic, division in the church, everything that's been going on out there has been a distraction from the pit of hell to keep us from our mission and ministry to make disciples for Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. It's time. 
to get back, as the bishop says, to making the main thing the main thing. How do we do that? Well, we do it in just this way. We wrap ourselves in the mantle of our faith. And we allow our hearts to become humbled and contrite. See, when the path of our life takes us into circumstances that overwhelm us, when we forget all that God has already done for us, and we react the way Elijah did initially with doubt and fear and disobedience, we have to remember what Elijah teaches us here. See, we can remember, for one, that the peace of God isn't part of the chaos. It's not in the wind. It's not in the shaking of the ground we stand on. It's not in the fire that turns up the heat of anxiety and fear and division and hatred. So the God of peace comes in a whisper. And that whisper reminds us that he is near to us. He is close to us and in controlled power over our circumstances. He is not near us to condemn us for our shortcomings and our failures, but he's near to us to lift us up, to dust us off, to get us back into the game, back into the action, back into the kingdom work for which he has called us. And to that we can all say, thanks be to God for his mercy and his grace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and stand for our final hymn this morning.